Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Mother Folklore and the Irish for Podcast, brought to you by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by the letter N, specifically N for Naomi. Hi, thanks Hi, so Naomi. much for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. My guest today is Naomi O'Leary, and we'll be chatting about her excellent podcast, The Irish Passport, about Ireland and the UK's respective relationships with the EU and each other, and the joys of multilingualism. Like so many people who reached adulthood during the bailout, Naomi emigrated from Ireland in search of work opportunities that weren't happening at home. A stint at Reuters in Rome and l'Agence France Presse. Did I get that right? <laughs> More or less. You can call it AFP. Everybody does AFP that. AFP in London. <laughs> yeah. Um, established reputation as a journalist with a talent for making stories about the EU engaging and relatable. As a freelancer, she's written for The Huffington Post, The Atlantic and Politico. In 2016, she produced her own documentary, Granite and Chalk about all the spies involved in the 1916 Rising. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. So let's get straight in. The Irish Passport is just an amazing idea for a podcast. And would you like to tell us more about it? Sure. So the idea is it's your passport to Ireland. So it's Ireland from an international perspective. We want to set things into the context of um what's going on internationally and also in Irish history because what what we found was a lot of um news about Ireland is for a domestic audience that's quite mm-hmm. up to date um and it assumes a lot of prior knowledge and that you know all about the backstory so certainly for me I would have to even myself like do a fair bit of digging in to actually understand what stuff is really about like you might see a name like Mars McCabe you know the whistleblower coming up and it, it actually takes a bit of work to understand and to kind of like to tune into the conversation at that stage so basically what we do is we pair the history with the current day and we explain things in terms of you know Irish culture and that so we have uh, we decided to do it because basically it just became hugely pol- politically pressing because mm. of Brexit because what was happening is that you had this big geopolitical upheaval that you know had huge stakes for Ireland and people just didn't know the basics about Ireland people didn't know that there was a border mm. um in, in in the UK and abroad and and the the risk is with a big uh, kind of a dom- dominant culture like the UK culture that's our neighbor is that that narrative becomes the international narrative so we we felt it was really important to to have an Irish voice um, explaining these things 
Um, and uh, and also it, it's not just for people who are listening around the world, but also for people in Ireland. Like we have loads of Irish listeners who who appreciate it. Like sometimes we might cover stuff that maybe is all too well known to you, but we a lot of people also say like it's great to have kind of a refresher on mm-hmm. actually the history that led up to today. And and we do do a lot of stuff that's fresh and current. So. Stefan, yourself and Tim actually do banter about it really well and actually do make topics that can otherwise be intimidating very accessible. Ah, thanks. That's nice to hear. Yeah. And the Irish for passport is pass. Yeah. It is neat. And that's one of the great things. This is a double meaning in Irish because it can also mean a kind of a phase in time or a fit. And we are actually in a very unusual phase of time for passports themselves. And I think the fact that there's the surge in applications for Irish passports is linked to this particular fit in Britain of the aftermath of Brexit itself. Yeah, what a poetic double meaning, actually. So, it yeah, it is a pass in time. So, yeah, that was another one of our topics was the Brexit Irish. So it was um, just talking about the huge rise in people who were claiming their Irish identity and claiming Irish passports and why they're doing it, what it means to them. Um, you know, and, and it was really interesting to talk to those people because uniformly they're all trying to embrace um, Irish history and Irish culture a little bit more than they were before. Uh, so, yeah, it's really, really interesting uh, moment, I think, uh, for our country. Yeah, I think so. And so what would you say were the, the uh, biggest misconceptions people in Britain and have about Ireland and also in, in Europe as well? Yeah, well, I mean, it, there's huge variety. So like just recently I was over in the UK and I just I tried tested this out by getting a gang of girls together and just quizzing them. They're absolute legends for consenting to this, but I quizzed them about Irish history and just asked stuff like, um, you know, what's the difference between Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and the North of Ireland, like Northern mm-hmm. Ireland? What's the difference? Or, um, you know, like, can you name a significant event maybe in, say, Irish history or something? Yeah. And then just tease out a little bit what they know. So you have a huge variety, like one person didn't know that Ireland's independent. That's actually really common in the UK. Um, and there was another person who uh, who thought it was the other way around. They thought that Northern Ireland was the bit that was its own country and that the Republic was part of the UK. Hmm. And uh, generally when I got people to guess what date roughly Ireland became independent when they knew. Um, they mostly said about 1850. So they assume if they know that it's independent that it has a much longer history. Wow. Um, so there's a there's a very, very deep gap in knowledge about the last hundred years. And uh, and that means there's a deep gap in knowledge about Ireland because like, mm. how can you understand what's going on and the political currents of today if you don't know that? Um, so like, the UK is almost its own special case there. But like I say, because they have so much clout, mm-hmm. the problem is that that viewpoint does get um, broadcast internationally. And then you have these problems where, you you know, you, you have the kind of the UK viewpoint being taken for granted. And yes. yeah, actually, curiously enough, Brexit is kind of changing that in a way because it forces Ireland onto one side of the negotiating table with um, the rest of the EU27. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side is the UK. And basically what the Irish government has had to do is make trips to all of the other remaining EU members mm-hmm. and just say, hey, we're Ireland. We have a border. This is our economy. <laughs> you know, just like the basics. Like, mm-hmm. And so now people are much more informed than they were previously. And it's it's kind of creating a distinction very clearly in, in people's minds that you can't lump the UK and Ireland in together, which yes. very much would have been done done before. Yeah, I think very much so. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that I found in terms of my wife is from Northern Ireland and one thing that in the most recent election in the UK people had not heard of the DUP who have had seats in Westminster for 20 years I mean I think it's the idea that say somebody in Ireland wouldn't have heard of a political party who'd been in, in the Dáil for 20 years just would seem extraordinary to me uh, there's this strange arm's length relationship with the North that, that people out reflexively accept that it as as part of Britain but also reflexively think it's 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 very much somewhere else and anyone who's tried to spend uh Northern Irish Sterling in London has uh, has come across, across this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it is fascinating. It's it's a psychological thing. There's just like a blind spot there. And mm-hmm. um what well we kind of investigated this actually in our podcast. We compared the way that history is taught in Ireland and the UK and we basically well in England and Wales anyway, we basically found out that Irish history it's not really taught. Like you can completely avoid it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to learn it. And so because of the kind of like the complex politics of the 20th century when Ireland was emerging and it wasn't a republic and then it was a republic and you know then then you the UK wouldn't have been accepting of Irish passports and other stuff because of all that there wasn't any one moment when like the UK government would have, would have announced to everybody like hey by the way that part that used to be part of the UK it's not anymore so you know there's there's a, a vagueness that remains mm. today yeah about what the difference is that's extraordinary and so in wider Europe, what do you think the misconceptions about Ireland are obviously in, in the other countries, like particularly obviously a relationship with Italy especially? Yeah, um, well, definitely I think something was interestingly highlighted when Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach. Mm-hmm. So like uh, you had all these international uh, news organisations saying like, Ireland has, you know, an, a half Indian gay prime minister. Like, well, how bizarre. And obviously it wasn't bizarre. Mm. In Ireland it was like a non-event, yes. you know. Um, so that that really shows the, the perception of Ireland that there is around. Like we are quite considered a bit of a twee country, very small, probably backward, very Catholic. We're kind of, we had those associations. So people have missed kind of like the last 20 years for sure in Ireland. They 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 didn't see that coming in, you know, the way in which Ireland has changed. So that, yeah, that's something we want to do as well is just like say loudly, hey, like this is actually what modern Ireland is like. Like this is this is who we are. I love yeah. that so many um, news news agencies said that Radcar was our first openly gay Taoiseach. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, like who knows? Like, exactly. We, let's, not, let's not kind of... Let's not point fingers. <laughs> no. Not saying, yeah. oh, Jack Lynch. <laughs> 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 Kidding. Yeah. But um, it is, it, it's definitely something that it's, I mean, and, and it, when people aren't studying things like that in in history class, that it, it, it actually weirdly puts a lot of pressure on films made about Ireland and cultural things. I think one of the things the difference between how people see um, Washington and how people see uh, Westminster is that they've actually we're very familiar with seeing films set in these places, and even though they're these are both two very dysfunctional um, political entities at the moment, we're not used to seeing the European Union represented um, in literature, in film, and television, and so we don't have that the same relationship with it in our heads. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, there's actually a Dutch TV series that was made recently called Brussels, oh. which is kind of like House of Cards but in Brussels, and it's really not bad actually. Um, it's it's good, um, and it, yeah, so it, it shows it as like this murky center of power with mm. corruption and stuff. But like you say, it actually lets you imagine it you know it tells you a story about the people involved and stuff and you can actually imagine you mm. know what is this brussels um even though it's not particularly flattering and the guy who mm. wrote it is actually a pretty harsh year skeptic himself so 
that's why. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that particular word because I think um, yeah, you're a skeptic is such a self-flattering description. It's the most self-flattering political moniker since pro-life, I think. And yeah. it's, I mean, why, why is it skeptic? Why are they, why do, people, do you think a skeptic is someone who actually is taking a, a, a a balanced or, or critical, um, they're kicking the tires of an idea as opposed to a, a Europhile who's just, you know, yeah. who's blazingly accepting it. Whereas you find in so many debates, Kevin, your skeptics are saying, nah, just not interested. And they all they have to do is create a small amount of doubt. And Brexit was won largely by just creating small amounts of doubt. While people who are, people who are defending Europe seem to constantly explaining what it is. And even as up to even those few days after Brexit, people were googling what is the European Court of Justice, what is the Commission, what does the Commission actually do? Yeah, and it's just, and it's, it basically is a language problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's um like the language that we used is is definitely rigged. Um and mm. yeah, so. I would say like you're a skeptic is an example of that. Like it is flattering. Like you'd want to be skeptical, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be skeptical. But um, also my particular bugbear is austerity. Like austerity mm -hmm. is so flattering for for what the policy actually is. Like it austere is like sensible, you know. Yes. And perhaps you might have an austere aunt who's like clever with her <laughs> finances, you know. Um, and so it's such a it's such a flattering euphemism for for cuts. And also it gives it a kind of a sense of rationality that really it didn't have. Like a lot of economists have huge problems with the whole idea oh, of imposing yes. austerity in a recession so you know it kind of it gave it a pass in a way and mm -hmm. yeah this this is just totally pervasive throughout language for sure i suppose this is one of the things when you're dealing with in translation i think sometimes translation gives an opportunity to correct something that isn't right i think there's actually like i think sometimes and this is one of the big issues with the translation of brexit itself that britain the brexit is implies that Britain's leaving. Well, we all know it's actually the United Kingdom that's leaving. True, that's another and one. Yeah. So translation was a nice opportunity to correct that. And I think there's, it'd be nice if we could say, well, austerity is a general idea, is, you know, like the sensible aunt, but then austerity as an actual policy, maybe by translating, we're saying, actually, no, we don't really think this. So apparently the Irish word for austerity is gantinous arrogant <laughs> or anger. 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 Well, that's, I think anger is incredibly appropriate. That's exactly how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or no, oh, sorry, the policy is Dania. Yeah. An austerity measure is a Bart Dania. Bart okay. Dania. Yeah. Uh, so there you have it. Um, yeah. It's not one that, I mean, do you hear this? I'm always very interested in how Nucht works because mm. that often you find that the people who are translating the news or, or writing the news in Irish are, have this moment where they have a... Um, are writing the first draft of the new terminology in the language. And there's some things like say they don't translate, like they don't translate Black Lives Matter. And we, we, we know all about that recently. And oh then, my God, yeah. And uh, some people have translated Black Lives Matter without realizing that uh, Dina Gurum is the Irish for a black person. And yeah. with Blue Lives Matter being the, the alleged opposite movement. Yeah. But then yeah. also the, the home sweet home, the homeless um pro-homeless advocacy movement wasn't translated as which would have been the equivalent term because that would have been first of all ridiculously long to say in the news yes it's quite also, a mouthful to be fair yeah i believe that the tech professional translators review use a term called a proper noun which are things that aren't oh. translated oh really okay so, i see so that's there's all like an internal policy and debate about which words are translated and that that's and really interesting especially with the european terminology because some european terminology they, there's a lot of acronyms and people know the acronyms internationally, but then some acronyms are translated and some aren't. 
So, Nomi, the Irish for the EU is? Antaintus Orpach. Which is an acronym wise? Uh, oh, it's AE, is it? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, you're seeing AE and you're thinking of the famous writer George Russell, obviously, <laughs> as we all are, but no, yeah. AE in this case is actually the EU. Yeah. The first ever Dublin Podcast Festival is happening this September 19th to the 30th. Brian Reed from S-Town, My Dad Wrote a Porno, Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces, Criminal, The Memory Palace and Welcome to Night Vale are all coming to town. Joining them are great Irish podcasts like Jarlath Regan's and Irishmen Abroad, the women's podcast, Dubland, What's the Story Pod with This Feels Terrible. The all-day podcast extravaganza is an all-day event including Fair Game, The Sunday Sermon, Stoneface Film Podcasts, Inside Politics and Potter Rooney, with wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network pods like Personality Bingo, The Alison Spittle Show, Juvenalia, No Encore, Reviewables and With Relish. That's the 19th to the 30th of September. Definitely an event not to be missed. Tickets are available from Ticketmaster and usual outlets. More information on DublinPodcastFestival.ie and Headstuff.org. The Dublin Podcast Festival is brought to you by Headstuff and Aiken Promotions. So, Naomi, has writing about other European countries changed your perception of domestic Irish issues? Often we can be very insular in Ireland and we talk about corruption as if it's the only place in the world where planning applications can be handled in a grubby way or that politicians are making bad decisions. Uh, 100%. It's been actually an incredible experience because I got to go to cover elections and politics and so on in all these different countries in in Italy and in the UK and stuff and then I got to go back to Ireland and cover the Irish election and then you know do Irish news and it's amazing like we're so we're so harsh on ourselves we really are like there are great things about Ireland like we compare really well like of course we have problems we do some things well we do some things badly but like if you had to pick problems, Ireland's are actually really not that bad. Like um, Italy has very, very profound problems with corruption and mafia infiltration mm-hmm. that we wouldn't want. Um, but we have a reflexive tendency to catastrophize with when issues come up in Ireland and we say reflexively, this problem exists. We're not fit to be a nation. This mm-hmm. actually, is, you hear it a lot. Or people say, this would never happen in the UK. You know, mm. We're always comparing ourselves to the UK, which is actually really flattering to the UK because the UK is not this like paradise where things are run all rationally. Mm. Like it's uh, it has that self-image and it's managed to project that image really well, but mm. it's actually not really true. It's not like this uh, this center of rational governance by any means. Yes. Yeah. I think we let the Scandinavian countries off the hook enormously as well. We just talk about them as if they're these idyllic That's kind of middle class uh, socialist paradises. Like and in Sweden, you say, you know. So I have this actually this theory about it that like countries have basket case self images and people have like center of the rational universe self images. Mm-hmm. So like the UK has center of the rational universe self image and Italy has basket case. So mm-hmm. that actually means there's loads of cultural similarities between Ireland and Italy in the way that we think about ourselves as country. Like mm-hmm. people are, yeah, they, they do catastrophize in Italy as well. Like in Italy and Spain, you'll hear people saying phrases like, in a normal country, this would not happen. And w- when they're talking about normal countries, they mean the Northern European countries, not mm-hmm. Ireland, <laughs> the rational ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thing, because I remember when uh, Brexiteer was referring to the olive line as, as being a concept of that basically countries that can't grow olives are well run. And this is obviously this deep, deeply felt issue that Britain's always had with basically with their relationship with Europe. They haven't looked there now. Yeah. With, with kind eyes, it's always been a place they've been fighting. 
that's it. Yeah, like they have a totally different history with mm. with Europe than we in Ireland do. Because um, mm. like, I mean, culturally, Ireland would have looked towards the centres of Paris and other places in the world, like when we were construct- constructing our national narrative and our, our literature and all of that. So like we just have a very long history, which is which is different. And also as a small country, you're forced into mm. a kind of an international awareness that big empires of former empires don't have to do mm-hmm. like you 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 actually yeah and then as, as well we are so mobile like we Irish people are all over the world and that that actually feeds back to us as well like because you end up knowing a lot about different parts of the world because you've got you know tentacles everywhere yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember actually hearing that one of the reasons particularly during the Bush era that there was so much anti-French talk I mean there was a number of um, European countries that were criticizing the, the United States position in Iraq but said one of the reasons that there, there was so much anti-French stuff was that people in the larger cities in New York, Chicago didn't know any French people, whereas they knew British people, they knew Italian people, they knew a Greek person from a bakery, things like that. And But, but because it was easy to go after France because people didn't have any relationships because France had very little actual migration to the States. There you go. That's really interesting. Just speaking of that, actually, I, I once lived with a girl who came from a very proud military family from Corsica. Mm-hmm. And um, she was told, quite meanly, I think, by another English guy who was living in the house, that there was a nickname for French people, which was cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And she cried. She had no idea that, like, French people were famous for surrendering. This mm. was like completely out of her conception. She had no idea. It's a shocking stereotype that's, re- that's endured uh, long past its sell-by date. So in terms of going around Europe, how does the Irish language compare to the other little languages, the wee languages? This is this is another thing where we're very mean to ourselves. Like we actually are doing pretty well. I mean, Irish is a minority languages and, and, and Europe is actually a continent of minority languages. Mm-hmm. There's huge linguistic diversity. Um, like Italy has 30 odd more than 30 different languages and, oh. and dialects. Um, and it's a lot of people take issue even with the word dialect because basically in Italy, they're not a variance of standards Italian. They would have been uh, tongues that developed simultaneously from Latin in a different direction yes. in different parts of Italy. Um, and it was just that the reason why Italian is Italian, it's actually the Tuscan dialect. Mm. Um, and the reason why they picked that one was because of Dante, the works of Dante and Boccaccio, which were quite famous. So it had kind of a prestige when they came to actually make the nation. They chose that one. Um, but, um, you know, they a lot of those those languages will not be mutually intelligible. Um, so they are very... They're very different, very mm-hmm. diverse. Um, and of course, they all have their own literary traditions and all of that. And people are proud of them and all of that. And they have none of the advantages that Irish does. We're mm-hmm. very privileged in that we made the case a long time ago that Irish is a national language. Yes. And we won that argument about 100 years ago. So that means that we have all these advantages, like we have official language of the EU status and mm-hmm. we have state broadcasters and the whole apparatus where people who, if they want to pursue a career in that language, they can. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, yeah. I mean, it gets bashed a lot, but, um, you know, there are people who are negative about it. But like, you know, we have a lot going for us, I must say. Yeah. And so uh, on that note, speaking more languages, the talk about the joys of multilingualism. And yeah. you learned Irish in school. Yeah, I, well, I tried to learn Irish in school. <laughs> um, I really like I spent more time on that than any other subject. I actually dropped honours maths so that I could spend more time learning Irish for the leaving but mm. it was like my hardest 
I no, I did not struggle with any other subject like I struggled with Irish. I really, and uh, until I went out when when I went to the Gael talked, it was transformative. I spent a few mm-hmm. summers in the Gael talked, and then suddenly I was like, oh, it's just it's just coming to me because it was around me. Because mm-hmm. yeah, you just can't learn it if you're. I don't think I couldn't learn it in a test tube where you're completely isolated from actually hearing it. Um, like that just didn't it just didn't work for me. Um, and I didn't realise that I was actually good at languages until I left Ireland and I went to Italy and then I found out that I could, I like. I mean, I learned Italian in a really, really fast amount of time and I don't know why, I don't know if it's due with me or it's due with the language, but I picked it up really fast and then I was suddenly like, it can be done, you know, mm-hmm. it can be done, this is something that we can do. But but again, like, you know, we, we kind of were very mean to ourselves and we say, uh, the way that Irish has been taught and all this but like one lots of languages are, and lots of subjects are taught badly and two it's probably not to do with Irish or anything specific to us mm. it's an Anglophone thing all Anglophone countries struggle with picking up second languages and it's yes. because the whole world the international lingua franca is English so you can completely avoid it if you mm. want to like there's no end of material um, whereas if you're living somewhere which has to begin with uh, a, a lingua franca which is which is not English then you already are you're getting both you're going to mm. get all that English language influence and you're going to get your own and that in itself helps you to learn you know, so. I think so I mean obviously if you were living in Italy or Belgium you're getting mo- all your pop culture pop music especially through English language and yeah a lot of like it and, and TV and all the famous people and, so and even say if a French person's hanging out with maybe a Swede they might actually be speaking English together as, as, yeah. as a kind of zone so that, that is something but what would you say is there anything that your experience with learning Italian so quickly could be communicable or transferable to Irish? Well, I know for sure that immersion helps like mm-hmm. because I actually had that experience when I went to Connemara and I, I did the Gael talk. I, I began to pick it up extremely rapidly. Um, so yeah, more spoken. I mean, that's what worked for me. And But I mean, I, you know, I don't know what's specific to my experience and what can be generalised. Mm-hmm. I do have a very, I was extremely angry about um, about kind of my experience of learning Irish because I did try so incredibly hard at it and without payoff mm. right so I have this distinct memory where I was in sixth year I was about four months or so off my leaving and the teacher walks into the room and she says right girls we're going to learn something called the Tishel Genedacht <laughs> and then I was like I began to understand what she was telling us mm. and I was like you're telling me that all this time when I was writing essays and they were coming back with these red marks on them it was because of this thing but you're only telling me about it now like mm-hmm. what is, I was furious, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, there are definite mistakes that are made. And and for me, like what's absolutely crucial is just a sense of joy in the language, um, a sense of like the positiveness to it, you know, and it being like a dull academic thing that you're kind of rote learning in, in, out of a book. It, it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And finally, before we wrap up, do you have a favourite and a least favourite Irish word? Um, well, actually, funny enough, I learned an amazing Irish word from a guy from Canada. Okay. So Canada actually has a really vibrant like uh, Irish learning scene. And uh, Hello he, to our Canadian listeners, by the way. Yeah, hi guys. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he told me a word which is just beautiful. It's a Kuschelschleifte. Kuschelschleifte. So it means the literally like the heartbeat of the mountain, but it's a word for like a trickling stream that you can hear, but you can't see. That's only gorgeous. Yeah, isn't that lovely? <laughs> That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and uh, there is actually a fair few ugly Irish words, I would say. But yeah, snag, snag kill is a pretty bad one. Snag kill for jazz. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's a woodpecker is a snug dark. Really? Yeah. What's the connection there? Do you know? Because I think the snug is is, is the tapping, tapping, and the beating. How interesting. It doesn't appear to be connected to snog, which is something that a lot of people think it does. But mm. it's, it's. I think that's just. It would a, have to be a particularly aggressive snog. I would have exactly, to say. Exactly. <laughs> you wouldn't want a woodpecker snog. No, certainly not. <laughs> Naomi, did you know that there are six hundred eighty-three entries in Terma.ie for European Union terminology? This is probably the extremely hard work of the translators who are working in Brussels, fair play guys. Especially if you look at the material they're working with, like the English of the EU is pretty weird, let alone the Irish. It is. I think the entire European Union language, the fact that in order to please everyone, they've ended up pleasing no one. And it is a thankless job, but we are going to take a moment to salute their work. And because today's episode is brought to you by the letter N, ah, 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 <laughs> we are going to look at some N terminology for the European Union. Yay. So I'm going to start off. My first one I've chosen is no bailout clause, which is Klausol, Tormishka, Tarhala. All right. I am going to tackle the this wonderful phrase, nomenclature, I can't even say it in English, nomenclature of territorial units for statistics, which someone has rendered Oskelga into Aikmu, Kov Koton, Nenenad Krita, Major, Lestadrov. Beautiful. Isn't that poetry? I feel dark? like I feel like I'm on a curve right now, <laughs> looking at the sun setting over the Aran Islands. This is what happens when you have a bunch of people from like 28 states, and many of them have English as their second language, and they come together and they work out what these extremely complicated things should be. You end up with these tortured phrases. I think so. I think this is what happens when you let people who enjoy meetings have meetings. Yeah, true. And finally, some people at home might be interested to know that the nomenclature of tutorial units for statistics is often called nuts for short. <laughs> I, mean, I am not joking. Mature humor here. Areas around Europe have all, each have their own individual nuts code. I swear I'm not making that up. <laughs> and finally, we are going to look at NEEDS, which is the Network for Enhanced Electoral and Democratic Support, which is Angresan Takirt Tatokran Augustan Denlaas. Well done, Derek. Thank you very much. That was exhausting. And so I want to thank all our friends in the European Union for giving us such beautiful terminology. And I want to thank all the, the guys and gals in Brussels and the Brussels Geltacht translating it and trying to make it slightly more bearable. Yeah, shout out to the Brussels Geltacht. Shout out to the Brussels Geltacht. They have fun, to be fair. Like, you know, after this, the work is actually done, they get to go on to those nice beer cafes and, you know, have the chats together. So, yeah, it's and they, great life. They've earned their um, chips and mayonnaise. They have indeed. So, it's a slon from me. And slon from me. Thanks a lot. And if you want to follow Naomi on Twitter, your Twitter handle is it's Naomi Oh Really, like, oh, really? <laughs> Good stuff. Slangafo. Hi, Dara again. I just want to thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. And I also want to thank all of you out there for listening, subscribing, and giving all the ratings and stuff so far. If you haven't rated or reviewed the show yet on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, please go ahead and do so because it's a really good way of helping bring the show to new people and new listeners. If there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a forthcoming podcast, please do message us on Twitter at Motherfucklore and we will absolutely read them and we will try and get back to as many people as possible and we'll try to pronounce any words you'd be interested in pronouncing as well. I want to thank Brian for producing the show and I want to thank Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork that goes with each podcast. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, the Headstuff Podcast Network has a range of excellent shows. May I recommend In the Shower with Taz and Marcus, 
which is a nice short show designed to be heard in the shower about the kind of things you think about in the shower. It's a great show, well worth listening to. That's all for now. See you next time. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Smashing. Nice. Excellent. I had fun. <laughs>